Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Bose Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. What joy do you get from hearing this passage? Both married and singles. When you, when you hear a passage like this, when this is the picture of marriage we are given, what comes into your mind? Right? I, I mean, just let your imagination start because I'm going to keep coming back to that question. But when you hear a passage like this, what pictures, what thoughts are coming in to your mind. Direct quote from this morning, from my wife's mouth, why does marriage have to be so hard? <laughs> it's because the pool of people you get to choose from are all sinners. Oh. In Ephesians 5, this is often a passage people go to to talk about marriage, but uh, I want to make a point here real, real quick as we start. Ephesians 5 does not give you a robust theology about marriage. Ephesians 5, Paul does give the man and the woman both some marching orders, but then he gives you a picture. Then he tells you a story, and he says, okay, like this. Like, hey, wives, I have some thoughts for you, some ideas for you about how you should hold yourself in marriage. Hey, hey, guys, I have some thoughts for you too, some ideas, if you could just do these. And, but if you need something to see, if you need the hands-on, he goes, man, look at this picture of Jesus and the church. What pops into your mind when you hear this passage? It would be my contention that Scripture often gives us two types of responses, Two types of thoughts, two types of feelings. Uh, the, the, let me illustrate it this way. Um, sometimes when you open up the holy text and you come to a passage, sometimes it, what it feels like is this. It's like you're in a dry and barren desert and then you come across a stream of water and you come and you drink from it and it's cold and it's refreshing and it's satisfying and, and it, it, it just like, totally quenches your thirst. Like when, you, when you're drinking from it, you think, I've never tasted water so good. There's times when, that, when you come to a scripture and that's what it feels like, right? Where, where it's just, it makes sense and it's life-giving. And then there are other times when that's not the story. And that's not the scene. And the scene looks a little bit more like this. You're in a dry and barren desert. And you come to this brook and there is no water. And not only that, but there's a lion prowling around and it jumps out and it devours you. Right? I mean, aren't there times when you come to the scriptures and it just hits you in the soul? You feel almost beat up from it? getting a lot of blank stares here. But I'm telling you, if you approach the text and it never confronts you, never convicts you, never challenges the way you think, the way you believe, the way you live, I think there might be something wrong. I think we might have made a Jesus that just 
molds to us and becomes like us. Hey, we are like him. We are not him. And he calls us to become more and more like him. And there's this ongoing, the rest of your life, transformative work that he's making you become more like him. Well, he's going to do that continually when you come to it with the word and it just hits you in a different way. It's going to chisel away at you and me. And it's just, it's going to challenge us in some ways. And if it never does that, if you never believe that there's a text in here that's part of your transformative work of becoming like Jesus, I think there might be some pride burrowed deep inside. Um, and if the scripture does hit you, and it does challenge you, and it does convict you, um, might I say that that is a really good thing. It's not meant to condemn you. It is not meant to, to beat you. It's meant to serve as a scalpel to give you more life than you're presently living in. And now that I've given you these two general pictures of how we come to the text at times and the the kind of thoughts that it might give us, when you hear about marriage, ladies, you hear, submit to your husbands. Guys, when you hear, die, die. What comes to your mind? I, I, I mean, what, what's the scene for you? Are you just thirsting from a fountain of water like you've never drank before? Or, or does it feel like it's kicking you in the soul? And I think it's important for us to begin wrestling with not just how this text bears its weight on us, but my, my, my thing that I would encourage you to start wrestling with, how do you think this fell on the original hearers? the original audience, when they, when they were reading Ephesians and, and Paul is writing to them and, and, he, and he says, hey, marriage like this. I'll tell you what, there was some hostility. There would have been some opposition. Um, but there also would have been some real great joy. Um, you see, the way of Jesus was Revolutionary. The way of Jesus' revolution, it was changing, Jesus was changing the construct of the ancient world as they knew it, which is why Christianity was under so much opposition and hostility. And, And the truth is, the way of Jesus is still revolutionary to our world, and it's the reason we're still under much hostility and opposition. The way of Jesus still threatens the economy of our day. It really does. But it wasn't just opposition. There was also an insatiable hunger that the early church had for this Jesus movement. People were coming far and wide. Even the, the context of our series, like Ephesians, Ephesus. Remember Acts 18? Remember how it all started? I mean, Paul preaches the gospel. He preaches that you were once dead and you can become alive in Jesus. And, and it says that people took their great riches, they took them into the city, and they burned them alive, burned up all their wealth and the left it in dust and ashes. And, and Luke, as he's recording Acts, he says, and this was millions of dollars of wealth. I mean, they, they tasted the gospel. They, they thought it was rich and beautiful, and it was so much so they would be willing to give down their greatest of possessions. And now, fast forward 15 years, Paul is writing to this church. 
This insatiable hunger that they once had, they now must have come into seasons or moments where they came to a brook and there wasn't water. Right, this church is struggling to understand what it means to live out the gospel. That's why Paul's instructing them. He says, okay, in case we forgot, here's the gospel, right? The first three chapters, this is, this is what God has done for you. Okay, so start living like this. Start living worthy of the calling that God has given you. And so he starts showing us how the gospel infiltrates all of life. How, how it reaches every crevice of our being. And, and here we get into marriage and how the gospel and what it really means to live um, your marriage in context of the gospel. And so somewhere along the way, these people that once couldn't get enough of this began understanding these scriptures as hard and difficult and they were ready to give up. Ephesus is the only church in all of the scriptures where you see its inception to its death. Right, in Acts 18, the church is born, it's birth there in Ephesus. People are laying down their greatest of wealth and, and they've fully surrendered themselves to Jesus. And then in Ephesians, Paul's saying, okay, did you guys miss, miss something? Okay, let me, I'll, I'll make it a little more clear as best as I can. And then in First and Second Timothy, Paul's like, okay, Timothy, things have gone super south there. Here's some instructions. Best of luck. And then in Revelation chapter two, Ephesus is on its deathbed. And Jesus comes to the church and says, you've lost your first love. And if you don't get back to that, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. That doesn't mean take away your salvation. It means this um, influence that you have here in Ephesus, I'm gonna take it away. Your post is gonna be gone. We won't have a church here anymore. Hey, church in the West, get more and more, more and more leery about the fact that our lampstand might be getting taken from us. And I think we have to get back to our first love. And so, um, we need the gospel ever before us. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel, of the transformative work for all of life that God is doing in us. And so, now that I've given you much time to think about how this passage is hitting you this morning, my guess would be it's some of both. There are when you think about marriage this way, whether you're single or married and you hear, okay, this is what biblical marriage is, the concept or the idea of, of respect and love, that, that those sound like good things if that's what people were really doing, right? And then we get these marching orders at times on days where that just feels like death, Right, there are days when, 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 the, when, when being the husband that God has called you to be, when being the wife that God has called you to be, nothing could seem harder than doing that. Right, when you're in the, the midst of the struggle, when you're in the midst of the fight and you're frustrated and you got a million other things and he said, she said, he did, she did. Right, there's, there's a, can you believe she said that? Can you believe he did this? One of the greatest dangers when approaching a text like ours, the one that we're in today, is that we would look at this seemingly impossible demand and laugh it off, right? Because, hey, when you hear these marching orders, when you hear, hey, marriage, 
like this, it can, it can seem like, aha, uh-huh, yeah, that's a good idea. Because I'm sure if I said, hey, um, raise your hand if you and your spouse are just nailing this concept. It would look like a game of Simon Says where Simon says, keep your hands down. Right? No one should be raising their hands and say, I'm nailing this. And yet we don't get to just laugh off what seems impossible. We don't get to treat God's word that way. Think about Jesus and what he thought about in regards to the sacred scriptures. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, he says this, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Other translations, when they say even the smallest detail, uh, would use the word iota. So, so it would seem to me that Jesus doesn't even think that you can erase a syllable from the text. But like he takes it that seriously. And so we must treat this passage of scripture as serious as though God truly intends and means it. We can't use whiteout here. Or we, we, we don't get to take the Bible and pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. At the end, we, we, we'd create another Jefferson Bible, right, where we've created a Jesus that is not the God of the Bible. It's a God who fits us, who has shaped to us, that dislikes all the things we dislike and hates all the people we hate. And so our passage this morning, we are picking back up in Ephesians 5, and this is the back half of Ephesians, right? We're just two more weeks here. But, but, but Paul is telling his audience what the gospel looks like in all of life. And we're talking about marriage this morning. And if you're here and you're not married, I want to say maybe for you, you'd say, hey, I have this deep longing desire to be married, to, to have what this is saying. I, I want that. Um, I'm not going to say, don't worry, you'll be there soon enough, or, or just stop trying and God will give it to you. No, but I, I want to say this. I want to set the tone for you for marriage to um, start meditating, start feeding yourself these ideals about marriage. Like what you feed grows, the thoughts that you're continually feeding on, they'll continue to grow. These ideas will grow. So start feeding yourself what biblical marriage is um, because Hollywood is trying to advise humanity on things like love sex, sexuality, and we are a more confused people than ever before. But I believe biblical marriage is revolutionary when truly lived out. And it's why I believe there's such an assault on marriage in our day. Because I believe it's revolutionary. I believe it's different. I believe it gives more dignity and value to humanity when we live out the callings that God has given to us. And trust me, nothing will be harder and so we pick up our, as we pick up in our text this morning, I want to give you my big idea, which is also a disclaimer. Um, marriage is not about your spouse, which means it's definitely not about you. It's about glorifying Christ. Therefore, marriage is a ministry. Marriage is a ministry. We are going to be picking up in verse 21. Um, I know that was the last verse of last week. Um, but we're going to pick there, up there and continue our passage. You know, some translations argue about where 21 should land, which, under which header should it be in. But I, I really think uh, probably it should fall under two cat- subcategories, headers, um, but definitely in ours today. 
and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Uh, Verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. Verse 22 has caused a lot of hurt and pain over the years when used and misapplied. Right? Um, We'll talk about some of what this means and what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is women, you're a punching bag. It does not mean you fall to every whim of what your husband says. It doesn't mean the conversation's closed. I'm the man, I said it. You better do it. That's not what Paul is saying. Um, But I want to let you in on a secret here. In the original Greek manuscripts, did you know that the word submit in verse 22 does not appear? It doesn't. Might have just, hopefully I let the cat out of the bag there. It's just not there. It says, wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. Whoa, what? No way. Really? It's not there. That seems a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Did our English, did this happen in the 50s? Was this a misogynistic movement? No. You see, it wasn't uncommon for the Greeks to have what's called verbless sentences. And so when you have a verbless sentence, what you do is you appeal to the verb in the verse prior. It's a continuation of thought. That's why the the, the New Living Translation puts the word further. It's a continuation And that's why the word submit from verse 22, he's speaking of a mutual submission that comes into verse 22. And then he's going to apply what submission looks like for the woman and the man. Um, Now, the word uh, submit in verse 22 um, is a military term, which meant to fall underneath. Now, we have to be careful and apply this correctly. One pastor, scholar, author, Tony Meridia, defines submission this way. He says, to submit is to put the will of the other ahead of your will. And so, um, if there's a type of submission that paves the way, this, this mutual submission that paves the way to talking about marriage, then inevitably there will be calls for both the wife and the husband to put the will of the other above themselves, above our own will. Which is why our translation says this is what submission is for the woman and this is what it looks like for the man. Um, And I want the scholars in the room to hear me for a second. A call for submission on both parties is not a dismissal of complementarianism. Um, Complementarianism would, would say that men and women are both equal in worth, dignity, value, and yet we're distinct in roles and functions. Um... In fact, when I look at this passage, I'm, I'm all the more convinced that, that there is a distinction between the man and the woman. Because he gives us two separate calls. He says to the wife, this is what it looks like. To the husband, this is what it looks like. So, so there is distinction. He even calls that the, the, the man is the head. He, he speaks of headship. It doesn't mean that women don't have leadership, leadership roles or skills. But he does speak of a unique role given to the husband in the home called headship. And... Um, and headship is at play here. And yet, Paul writes to his original audience and says, this is what mutual submission looks like for the wife and the husband. 
John Piper has a great article on why mutual submission does not contradict a complementarian worldview. Here was one quote from the article that I, I greatly appreciated. He said, mutual submission does not obliterate the roles. It transforms them. In the first century, this view, this call that Paul gave to these husbands and wives, it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary to give the man marching orders. What? She doesn't just exist to be my property? This was revolutionary. Do you, do you know the population that was most, um, that the early church most appealed to? It was women. It was women. The early church, women flogged to the church. In um, Tom Holland's book, uh, not the, not Spider-Man, um, a sociologist, uh, but Tom Holland's book, um, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, he speaks to the fact that no other worldview gave women dignity, value, and respect other than the Jesus people. Jesus viewed women in such a high regard. This was liberating. This was a liberating call to women. It told them that they mattered, that they had worth, and they didn't need to be treated cheaply. In so many ways, they were treated as property. This wasn't a love relationship. That's not how these relationships started. It wasn't like they were at the uh, local pub where they saw a woman and the guy came over with some slick pickup line. That's not how these things started in the first century. It was a societal position. It was property. It was, it was power. So it had nothing to do with a love relationship. And, and the man um, in this patriarchal world, he got to sleep with other women. He, he got to abuse his wife. She was property and it was a position of power for him. And they were treated as nothing, as they didn't really have a say. Um, we were in Kenya, obviously, these last couple weeks. And one of the churches that I would say moved us probably more than any other were when we went to the Maasai lands. And the Maasai are still very much indigenous people. Um, and the bulk of women don't have any formal education. They are dependent on the man for everything. And so when you hear about the same type of world where abuse is happening, where multiple mistresses is happening, and you, and you hear about this and you wonder why, why aren't women running? There's nowhere to run to. To, to leave would be to leave a whole family unit. And so, so in a lot of ways, they're, they're stuck. And guess what? Every church we went to, guess what the majority of the population was? Women. Women. And, and when we were in this one Maasai church, they sang worship for us. And for about what seemed, seemed about like 10 minutes, they sang the same thing over and over. And, and the, they share with us later, because of the such low level of education, because of how uneducated they are, they have to keep everything so simple, which is why they sing things so repetitively. And they kept singing this phrase over and over in Swahili. But in English, it was the words, Jesus, with everything we praise you. They got nothing. 
They're treated as nothing, but they are told by the word of God that they are infinitely valuable because they've been made by God and Jesus with everything we praise you. I was sharing with Karen afterwards. They don't have much. They have nothing, and yet they sing this way, and yet they, the songs have to be kept simple, and I guess it's why the song of heaven is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's repetitive. It's simple. And unless we become like these little children, we will never enter the kingdom of God. So it just, this just moved me while I was there to see a world like this, and yet the women there are flogging to the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that is for them, and it tells them that they have worth, value, and dignity. And so in the, in the first century when Paul writes this and he says, hey, women, yes, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, that the revolutionary part of that was if it just said submit to your husbands, it's like, of course. That's the world we live in. He's the man. What he says goes. We do it. No questions asked. But Paul says, as to the Lord. Husbands don't get to lead wives into sin or strong them, strong arm them into disobedience. You see, we have several examples in the New Testament where you see the apostles look Rome right in the face and we say, hey, we know what you say, but we have a higher authority that we're submitted to. Right? So, so when you see this idea of mutual submission in marriage, husbands and wives, guess what? We submit to a higher authority than your husband or your wife. Right? There's something else that we appeal to that, that's bigger and better. And this was a revolutionary idea for women because, again, these were not built on love. It was position, power, and property. And the woman had no legal right to disagree with the husband. It was not uncommon for the man to have multiple mistresses. Abuse them was, abuse was prevalent. And here Paul says, we don't submit to that. He says, we submit to your husband, you submit to your husband as unto the Lord. I remember over a year ago now doing my vows across from my wife and Karen shared that she was prepared to take on her role uh, of the wife and she was ready to submit to me as the head of the home so long as I was going to be obedient to Christ. That if I wasn't prepared to lead us in that way, then she wasn't ready to follow. And so yes, the biblical view is the wife would follow the man's headship as long as unto the Lord. As long as the leading is godliness and not sin. And as long as The wives are being honored the way Christ would honor the, the church. Let's pick back up in our text, verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault in the same way husbands ought to love their wives just as, uh, love their wives as they love their own body. For a man who loves his body will actually show love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of this body. For husbands, this means die. Lay down your 
life. Uh, I guess this is why the early church appealed more to women than to men. <laughs> the, the message of the gospel was coming and confronting the culture of the day. And again, it still does. And I, I know we're, we live in a day and age where we're to be quiet about the gospel in the world. Like we don't talk about religion and faith and, and all that stuff. But the gospel confronts cultures. It goes right after them. It attacks norms and traditions. He says, love her. Love her. Just as. Well, like, think about that. Just stop there. Just as. Is there any more challenging words than those? I failed this week. Just as shows us how Christ put the needs above his own. So much so the greatest form of love that, that Jesus tells us is that it would be a love that's displayed by laying down your life for the other. So how do we love just as? How do we lay down our lives? I was thinking about how Jesus promises the church. He says, I will always be with you. Knowing full well the church will continually fail, continually run away, continually forget and yet the promise is, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Goodness, that would be hard. <laughs> right? Uh, okay, help me out here. Picture this with me. <laughs> Imagine you're going up to an altar, and the person you're going to be standing across, the man or the woman, um, that you'll stand across. You've been given insight that they are going to continually leave you, continually cheat on you, continually wrong you, forget you, all these. Are you going to the altar and saying yes? I'm not. Right? Like if that's the story. That's what you're being told you're signing up for. I mean, how could you do How could That's the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That he would know everything that we would do. Know the times where we would wander and give our love and affection in other places. And yet he shows up for us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just as, just like that, he's telling us we're to love our wives. Are we committed this way? If your wife were to to fail you in some way, or maybe she has, or maybe she will, or, or maybe there's issues in the home. Are you committed to not leaving, not forsaking? And, and hear me, I know there are times where it's not safe to say. I'm, never, I, I'm not gonna encourage that. But I think there are times when irreconcilable differences, sometimes it's just a failure to love just as. Laying down your life at times looks like pulling into the driveway after a whirlwind of a day and saying, I'm going to go and show up. I'm going to go in and check on wife and her day, her fears, her worries. It looks like getting involved with your wife when you want nothing more to do than watch the lions tank on Thanksgiving. Laying down your life may look like getting well yourself may look like doing the hard work of checking out the dark recesses of your own life so that you might better love and serve your wife. 
Guys, that'll feel like death at times when you start dealing with your own shame and your own brokenness. But you gotta get real about it. Can't keep shoving it down as if, okay, this isn't affecting my wife. It might be affecting your wife. And are you gonna love her like you love yourself? Verse 28, may as well say happy wife, happy life. Right, I know some people don't like that phrase. Um, but God has designed it in such a way that when you live a life of sacrifice, when you love and serve your wife, it's actually doing good for your own self. I get the point that you can't always make your wife happy or fulfill every desire that she has, but there should be a real intention of making your life well and whole. And in doing so, you're taking care of yourself. I'm telling you, this, your wife's happiness matters. Not just for her, but for you. And are we going to present her holy before the Lord? Are we loved and cared for and protected and sacrificed for her? That's what God calls us to. Let's pick back up in our text, verse 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here we get the picture. Right, in the Old Testament, there was a, a picture that was given that God gave for the people of Israel. He said, hey, do you want to understand what my love is really like? He's like, hey, Hosea, prophet, get over here. You see that adulterous woman over there? Yeah, the, the one on the street, the one that's beatered and battered, and she's, you know, loose around the town. He goes, yeah, go love her. And when she runs away and she runs off to other men and other lovers, he goes, go and chase her down. Provide for her. Love her again. He said, Israel, that's my love for you. It's not that I loved you because you were some amazing, sacrificial. Uh... No, he's like, when, when you were adulterous, when you were running to other places, he said, I showed up for you, I loved you, I cared for you. And in the New Testament, the picture we are given is that of Jesus and the church. And guess what? You and I, we're not Hosea. We're Gomer. The church is Gomer, and it's this picture of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that in this, God loved us when we were sinners and sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Like when we were in the midst of our debauchery, when we were in the midst of our sin, God loved us. Man, I love that love story because it's not predicated on performance. And I look at a text like this, and I see this high calling that God has given the, the wife, the, the high calling that God has given the husband. It's extraordinary weight, isn't it? That's why I said nobody's nailing it. It's heavy. We're failing at it. And yet the grace of God must show up. I think we have to be much more gracious with each other. And we ought not be an expert on each other's weaknesses, but become an expert in our strengths. Call out the good things in your spouse. How radically different would your marriage be 
if the thing your spouse said to you was, thank you for always encouraging me and calling out my strengths. How often is the heart-to-hearts we're having because the other person's not showing up or they're failing? And I'm not saying stuff that stuff. It has to happen. But what, what do you think that does for your spouse when all you're ever bringing up is their shortcomings and how they're failing you or not meeting your expectations? When they already feel this heavy weight, I'm gonna love like, like Jesus. I'm gonna respect him like as unto the Lord. When there are several times that he's not, when there's several times where she's not respecting, like when one end of the deal is being held and the other isn't, it makes it almost feeling impossible to fulfill your end of the deal. But hey, I don't see a, hey, love her like the church so as long as she's respecting you. I don't see that. I don't see I don't see, hey, only respect him if, if he's just nailing it on every cylinder. No, again, I'm not saying that we, st- that we put up with um, abuse or being um, mishandled, but, but I think we, we have to offer some grace for each other. That's the only way we could ever live out this picture. You see, the picture of Jesus in the church, it only gets lived out because of grace. Jesus could have every right to walk away, but it's accomplished because of grace. Wives and husbands, if you can model this, this will give you the greatest shot at marriage. I love that we get a picture. I love that we get an illustration that it's not just textbook. It's not just do this, but it's like, look at this. Look at Jesus. What if our marriages looked this way? What if we were truly seeking her interests above our own? What if there was a glad-heartedness about your husband that you said to all your girlfriends? What if we lived this out? I believe people would be drawn to it. I think the world would see it as something that's revolutionary. In the gospel, this great grace that was shown towards us ought to be lived out in our marriages. This would be a worthy calling in light of you being given new life. Live your marriage this way. Let me pray for us.